in an alternate reality where everything's the same except Arby's is pronounced Arbis. This change in pronunciation from Arby's to Arbis created a butterfly effect starring Ashton Kutcher creating an entirely new world. Earth 2, also known as Arbus Earth 2021. Me, your host, Christian Patterson, sitting in a limo, wearing sunglasses. I say, my palms are sweaty. My assistant points at me with a pin and says, Mom Spaghetti. Then I say, this is going to be our biggest show yet. Make sure those big wigs at Spike TV are watching. My assistant says, oh, they'll be watching. The whole damn world is watching. We arrive at the venue, the new Society Show Theater. Big late night style stage, dramatic start with dancers. It's a big episode tonight, folks. The show opens without audience applause, just me at my desk. And I say, you know, audience, some days we like to have lots of laughs around here, but not today. Today is serious business. Today I have an exclusive interview. The only person who could book this interview in the Western Hemisphere right here on The Society Show. And with that, please welcome to the show the brotherly leader of the United African Republic, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi comes out. Hello, hello, I say. As I introduce Gaddafi and say hello to him, I look out into the crowd and I lock eyes with a member of the audience who is not clapping, just staring. It's Michael Jackson. Next to him, also not clapping and just staring, it's Elvis Presley. Then next to Elvis, Adolf Hitler. Colonel Gaddafi sits down. I look at him and say, Am I in hell? Why is Hitler here? Gaddafi says, No, comrade, you are on Earth 2, the Arbus Earth. What does that mean, I ask? Gaddafi says, If I tell you, you will be magically transported out of this world. Do you want to know what I mean? I say yes. Gaddafi tells me, In our world, we call the roast beef sandwich fast food restaurant Arbus. And I say, yes, that's correct. Then Gaddafi says, well, in Earth One, it's pronounced Arby's. Hey man, everybody on Twitter thinks you're a dumb nerd. I control reality, you bow down and do what I say. Broadcasting live to tape across the nation and world from the new Society Theater, where bathrooms are for customers only in Seattle, Washington. It's a podcast for a world gone mad. This is The Society Show. And now, your hopes. A man for whom this week has been a special love affair between him and the gambling industry, Christian Patterson.
Hello and welcome to the Society Show. Do you believe in society's laws? My name is Christian Patterson. We're joined here on Earth One. Uh, I'm glad to be back, although I am famous on Earth Two. Um, so we're just going to talk about some news and see where the show takes us. So, uh... Did you happen to hear that uh, Japan, hosting the Olympics, I've talked about this recently, they are currently investigating a subway death, a death on Tokyo's subway system, and uh, local media is actually saying it was an Olympics official, so... I don't want to get conspiratorial here, but remember when I was reporting recently that uh, a lot of officials in Tokyo do not want the Olympics to happen. So maybe there's some something secret going on here. Maybe there was a hit out on the Olympics official. That's not really what I believe. I'm just uh, I'm just speculating. With no basis. So let me read from this article. CNBC. Tokyo. Tokyo police said they are investigating a deadly incident on the city subway, which media reports said involved the senior official at the Japanese Olympic Committee. A senior official? That's a really bizarre thing. This guy was a, a big up type of guy, dies a few months before the Olympics in a subway incident. And, I mean, just to be completely transparent... Um, I was kind of angling with the conspiratorial stuff at the beginning, but I really think this is just a coincidence or happenstance. I don't think this really has anything to do with the Olympics. But what if it did? Well, I missed a detail in this article that, uh, maybe this makes it more likely to be about the Olympics than I thought. He, he was, it was a suspected suicide. He jumped in front of a train. Maybe he was dealing with so much stress about the fact that there's a COVID outbreak in his country and he's trying to do the Olympics there. Who knows? But, uh, I will say rest in peace. Rest in Now, another story I wanted to talk about at the top of the episode, Jeff Bezos is going to space on the first crewed flight of a rocket. This is from CNN. I'll just read a little bit. Jeff Bezos will be flying to space, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Made by his space company, Blue Origin. The flight is scheduled July 20th. Just 15 days after he is set to resign as CEO of Amazon. His younger brother, Mark, who we've never heard about, I haven't at least, I didn't know Jeff Bezos had a brother, will also join him on the flight. Here's a quote from Bezos. Ever since I was five years old, I've dreamed of traveling to space. On July 20th, I will take that journey with my brother, the greatest adventure with my best friend. Now, um, if I, you know, if I didn't know better, if I didn't know that the kind of vampiric billionaires like Jeff Bezos, if I didn't know that he wanted to live forever, you know, like Peter Thiel and all that, if these people didn't want to live forever... Um, because that's how craven you are. Once you become a billionaire, you like lose all, you lose all perspective. All you know is accumulate more and 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 capital. I can't imagine a reality where I'm not accumulating more and more and more and more. Uh, that's when you think, oh, maybe I can live forever. You become so conditioned by the nature of capital that you you don't even know how the freaking physical, biological world and the inevitability of death works. So, if I didn't assume Jeff Bezos wanted to live forever and there is good evidence that he's seeking, you know... I mean, he he very well is probably cybernetic. A lot of people think he has a cybernetic eye. Um, if I didn't know that, I'd assume he's doing some elaborate, like, death wish type thing. Uh, if anyone's watched Westworld Season 1, 
Uh, I'm sorry, I'll give some spoilers, but I'll put some background music while I'm giving the spoilers, so you know, if you want to fast forward, if you hear background music, I'm still giving spoilers, but... Anthony Hopkins' character in Westworld Season 1, the, sh- the season ends with one of the robots he created shooting him in the back of the head. And what we learn is this is actually what he wanted the entire time. He wanted a robot uprising, and he was working for ostensibly decades to make that happen. And so when the robot shoots him in the head, he's kind of like, oh, that's my grand exit. That's the grand finale of my uh, project is the robots rebelling against their creator, me. And if I didn't know better about Jeff Bezos, I would think that he has a similar sort of plan where he's like, uh, well, I'm resigning from Amazon, I'm going into space, and um, maybe I'll die, and that will be the completion of my billionaire project. The thing is, I just, you know, we've seen so many of these rockets blow up when they try to land. That's the only reason I'm going down this track. Has he ever watched the Tesla rockets um, blow up and land and all that? I would never do this. This seems way too damn risky. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. July twentieth next month. We have a little over a month to see if Jeff Bezos lives. Because yeah, these rockets are dangerous, man. What? <laughs> Come on. All engine running. Before we go further, we actually are going to have a segment from The Silver Lining with Mark Silver in a moment. If you're not familiar, that is a segment we do on this show. Um, It's actually a MSNBC show that they graciously let us license and play on The Society Show. We play some segments, so stay tuned for that. But first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. 7-Eleven. Oh, thank heaven. Oh, thank heaven for 7-Eleven. Where the good things come easy. 7-Eleven. Thank you for sponsoring the show, 7-Eleven, also known as 7-I Holdings. That's what their holding company is called, based in Japan. 7-I Holdings, 7-Eleven, thank you. Hello, my name is Mark Silver. And I am joined by my co-host, Seymour Humphreys. Hello, Seymour. Hey, Mark. How's your morning going, Seymour? Are you enjoying your coffee over there? Yes, Mark. You know I always love my grande macchiatos in the morning. Well, that's great, Seymour. I'm just drinking my coffee black, uh, Folgers. Folgers, that's how you say it. Folgers, not Folgers, yes. Um, Well, let's get into the news, shall we, Seymour? I'm ready, Mark. Alright, Kamala Harris went on a trip to Central America. Most notably, she uh, is getting attention for telling Guatemalan migrants not to come. Um, she's very explicit about that, uh, clearly doesn't want migrants. Let's play the clip. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. But we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. And I believe 
If you come to our border, you will be turned back. So let's discourage our friends, our neighbors, our family members from embarking on what is otherwise an extremely dangerous journey. So, Seymour, what do you think about that? Clearly she is warning immigrants that our system is not able to keep them. It doesn't mean she hates immigrants. Well, perhaps, Seymour, but, uh, I mean, this rhetoric is not too different from... Don't even say his name. Well, I'm sorry, Seymour, but the reality is this sounds exactly like something that... Don't say his name, Mark. Well, he is a former president, and, um... I think it's an apt comparison to say that Kamala Harris sounds exactly like Donald. Say his name one more time and I'll kill you. Well, that was uh, The Silver Lining with Mark Silver. Um, Once again, Seymour is having a meltdown about Donald Trump. But thankfully, we have really legitimate and honest journalists on MSNBC who will call out Kamala Harris and Joe Biden for their crap. So I'm really thankful for Mark Silver for that, and I'm glad there's so, so, so many other commentators on MSNBC who will do that. Thank you, Mark. Here's a little news flash. It's not funny. In fact, it's pretty freaking unfunny. Now, one story I want to talk about, this is in Nigeria. You may have been, so if you're on Twitter, you may have been hearing about Nigeria lately because Nigeria recently has been trying to crack down on Twitter. And there's nothing that, you know, if you're looking for news on Twitter, there's nothing that Twitter loves to have you read more than news about Twitter. But, you know, in general, it is quite a terrible news source. Uh, For example, they would never report on this Nigerian story that I found extremely interesting, so I'm reading from The Guardian. Here's the headline. Boko Haram leader killed on direct orders of Islamic State. Here's the subhead. ISIS ordered death of Abu Bakr Shakao over concerns about indiscriminate targeting of believers. Boko Haram, although maybe not officially part of ISIS, they're kind of like, um, maybe an accurate way to describe them is like a ISIS franchisee in Nigeria. They're traditionally associated with ISIS in some ways, but, uh, this guy was killed by ISIS at ISIS's orders, Because he wasn't being discriminant enough in his killing and was accidentally killing uh, Muslims. So, let me read from the text. Abu Bakr Shakao was one of the most infamous leaders of of the Islamic militant groups anywhere in the world. He died last month after detonating an explosive device while being pursued by fighters from the Islamic State West African province, Iswap. The Iswap fighters had stormed the Sambisa Desert, a swath of strategically important dense forests in Nigeria's northeast, which was Shikau's base. His death both delighted and embarrassed Nigerian and international security services, who spent a decade devoting huge resources on hunting down Shikau. That the operation against Shikau was launched on the direct orders of the leadership of ISIS in the Middle East, which is concerned by Boko Haram's indiscriminate targeting of believers, underlines the continuing global reach of the group through its affiliates and the possibility of further expansion in Africa. Now, this is an interesting story for several reasons. One, you know, presumably ISIS had grown a lot weaker 
it's losing the war in the Syrian civil war. Whatever's left of it is only really being bolstered by Turkey or maybe some other uh, undesirable forces. But um, they don't really have nearly as much power in Western Iraq like they used to. As far as I know, you know, a lot of ways we think of ISIS as being done. Maybe part of that is because uh, U.S. foreign policy has shifted entirely away from Middle East terrorism, so-called. I'm not saying ISIS are so-called terrorists. They are, um, by any conventional definition, terrorists. I just don't really like using the word terrorist myself. It's very ideologically loaded. Uh, that's why I called them so-called. I don't want to give the impression I'm sympathizing with ISIS. My point is, um, maybe we just don't hear about the, the things going on in the Middle East with ISIS because the U.S. has shifted from the war on terror to the Cold War against China. I mean, I do try to read the news a lot. I try to keep people informed, but that's just where my mind goes. Another reason why this makes ISIS seem a lot more powerful than the impression we get is, I mean, Boko Haram has historically been an ISIS affiliate. Now they are not. There is now a more formalized uh, ISIS affiliate, because they even have Islamic State in their name, who is fighting against Boko Haram. What this says to me is ISIS is still able to consolidate power. They still have the power and ability to consolidate and presumably get more power and control. So, uh, this is kind of bad vibes. And the last thing I will say, the last takeaway I have about this, is similar groups are doing these types of terror attacks in other parts of Africa. In, yeah, in West Africa, particularly Mozambique, there is a group called, called Al-Shabaab. That's how I know them. They're also called Ansar Al-Suna. But they're active and they're an ISIS affiliate. They use the, like, ISIS flag. I mean, they're not exactly part of ISIS as I know it. They're more like an affiliate. And that's kind of the way that ISIS can work. They they have different groups that are varying degrees of a part of ISIS. And so they're in one sense decentralized, but in another sense highly centralized. I just, yeah, I don't know how to make sense of this. This is, uh, what this says to me is that maybe ISIS is about to grow more powerful in Africa rather than the Middle East. Um, but we'll see where this goes, but uh, it doesn't look promising. It's going to be peace in the Middle East. And even though there was a ceasefire in Israel, I do want to highlight uh, two stories because... You know, once the once the bombing stopped, there's still a lot of kind of everyday uh, oppression that is in itself pretty horrendous, but it gets overshadowed. So I want to focus on what's going on in Israel and Palestine right now. This first story from Middle East Eye. There are two people. They're twins. Mana and Muhammad Al Kurd. You you may have heard about them. They are not. They are pretty public figures. They are some of the most public Palestinians that we have access to in American media. So this is what uh, Middle East I wrote. The arrest and brief detention of Palestinian activist and writer Muna Al-Kurd and Mohammed Al-Kurd in Jerusalem on Sunday has sparked popular and international outrage. The twins, who both face the threat of displacement from their family home, have become the voice of the online campaign to halt the imminent evictions of Palestinian residents from the Flashpoint East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. 
You may be familiar with Muhammad Al-Kurd because he was uh, on TV. He appeared on, uh, I believe, CNN. Do you support the protests, uh, the violent protests that have erupted in solidarity with you and, and, and other families in your position right now? Do you support um, the violent dispossession of me and my family? I'm just asking if you support the protests that are taking place in support of, of, of your family. I support, I support popular um, protests taking place against ethnic cleansing, yes. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Mohammed Al-Kurd, thank you very much. And he was arrested shortly after he made that appearance um, in what is obviously politically motivated. I mean, it's not a coincidence that right after he makes a TV appearance uh, denouncing the Israeli state, the Israeli state comes knocking on him, his doors with uh, militarized police. And um, his sister, uh, Mona Al-Kurd, is actually seen in a viral video. Per the, in the video, there's a man and a woman. Perhaps the man is also Muhammad. I'm not really sure. Um, but she does most of the talking. If you've been following this online, you've probably seen the video, but I'll play a clip in case you're listening in the future. You are stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. No, no one, no one uh, uh, is allowed to steal it. Jacob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? Why are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But you, it's you, easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. Yeah, you are helping. stealing my house. In the video, a an American man, um, he must be Jewish, but uh, he he's clearly American. He has a New York accent, um, and you know we later learned that he was a Trumper, big Trumper, and he was uh, sent to Israel. He was basically compensated and paid to immigrate to Israel and displace uh, Palestinians. So that's the context for that video. Both of them have been arrested, and now. I, I do want to point out that this is a way, this is a very similar tact to what they did when they destroyed the building in Gaza that contained AP News offices, Al Jazeera offices, and Middle East Eye offices. When they destroyed that building, what do you think they were doing? Oh, they must have been attacking Hamas. Of course. Why would AP News be collaborating with Hamas? Huh. No, the real reason is obviously they didn't want people, they didn't want journalists documenting what was happening in Gaza. And similarly, uh, Mohammed and Mana al-Kurd are some of the most... Uh, prolific citizen journalists in East Jerusalem. They uh, are able to document a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff that we just do not see. And we would not have an opportunity to see. So this arrest is very targeted. It's not because they um, d committed a crime, of course. It's not because of this or that. It is purely because they broadcast atrocities committed by the Israeli state government. And I have another story um, about how Israel uh, mistreats the press. Because, I mean, that's what they're doing with the, the other story. They are... They're not arresting them because they're people. They're arresting them because they're docu documentarians. They And, you know, they want to evict them, obviously. So, um... This is another attack on the press from Al Jazeera. Here's the headline. Al Jazeera journalist leaves hospital day after Israeli arrest. 
an Al Jazeera Arabic journalist, Guevara Budieri, left hospital on Sunday after receiving treatments for injuries sustained during her arrest by Israeli forces the day before. Budieri's Budieri's, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, left hand was fractured when she was arrested while covering a demonstration in the occupied East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. Israeli police also destroyed equipment belonging to Al Jazeera cameraman Nabil Mazawi. Her arrest drew sharp condemnation from press freedom activists and media watchdogs. And, you know, you really, this goes to show why you really have to take anything Israeli police or the IDF says. You cannot take it on face value because their allegations against the journalists are so unbelievable that only someone who had already drank the Kool-Aid would buy this. Uh, it says she, the journalist who was arrested was, quote, accused of assaulting a female police officer and not presenting her credentials, claims both she and Al Jazeera strongly deny. The Israeli allegations were also contradicted by footage shot of Boudieri's arrest. I mean, it goes without saying that a journalist for one of the biggest news sources in the world was not beating up a cop and refusing to show credentials. Anyone who believes that is just like honestly out of their gourd. Um, but, I mean, I guess I don't have much more to say about this except the the conflict between Israel and Palestinians has nowhere near ended. It's just, they've just stopped bombing people, but everything else is the same. Like, this is the type of repressive crap that happens in the U.S. a lot, and, um, we rightfully call it out, and it happens perhaps even more in Israel. May Allah awaken the people and help them to see the evil doings of Israel and the United States. Now, I, I did, uh, those are the news stories for today. I do have a couple little features I want to touch on. I'm not going to talk about them for a lot, but... One thing I wanted to talk about is, you know, there's a lot of sports going on. We're in baseball season now. It is the end of hockey season and basketball season. Uh, this is a great time for sports, uh, unless you're a football fan in the U.S., American football. Um, because that's not going on right now. But other than that, it's a great time if you're a sports fan. And because of that... I wanted to talk about a, two, uh, a couple sports riots because the idea of a sports riot always interested me. And I wanted, so I wanted to zoom into uh, a couple sports riots. So to be, to be transparent, the first time I remember a truly critical, violent, um, maybe not violence, the right word, but intense um, riot was the 2011. Vancouver Stanley Cup riot. This was all over the news when it happened. One of the reasons why is Canada has a history of rioting because of hockey games. They also rioted in in Vancouver in 1994 and the crazy thing about it both of these riots happen in very similar circumstances. The 1994 riot was uh, following Game 7 of the 1994 Stanley Cup Finals, where the Vancouver Canucks lost to the New York Rangers. The 2011 uh, Vancouver Stanley Cup riot was when the Vancouver Canucks lost in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals to the Boston Bruins. Both times they lost in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup to an East Coast American team. 
Now, yeah, so what I really, what interests me about this story is why did they riot because they lost, right? Because you might be like, well, they were angry they lost. True, but there's also, I mean, there's plenty of instances where people riot because they won. And uh, what what makes me curious is why do wins cause riots sometimes, and why do losses cause riots sometimes? For example, I have actually been not involved with, but generally right by a sports riot. I was living in Philadelphia, specifically in Fishtown. Um, if you're familiar with Philadelphia, I was living in Fishtown when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. You know, there were no rioters near me, but I could hear from my apartment, I could hear crowds of people over uh, on Front Street, which is the street that the subway station runs down. And that was like half a mile away. I could hear tons of people, could hear fireworks everywhere. The whole town was nuts. There was a riot in Center City. All that went down, right? But they won. And similarly, there was a uh, ri- there was a riot in Edmonton in 2006. Um, Edmonton Oilers fans uh, set fires and looted. After the Oilers uh, qualified for the 2006 Finals. So, there similarly, when the Eagles qualified for the Super Bowl, there was also uh, looting and small riots. So, you know, there is a celebratory type of rioting. Um, Yeah, and then there's also the story about uh, where the Montreal Canadiens... after they won the 1966 and the 1993 titles, they rioted. And they also rioted again during the 2008 and 2010 playoffs. Why is it that in Vancouver, they rioted when they lost? I, that's what I don't get. They, but all these other places, they riot when they won. I'm especially interested in this because, you know, living in Seattle, Vancouver is like a, you know, it's a brother from another mother. You know, if you live in Washington and you go to British Columbia, you will be like, how the hell is this a different country, but I'm in the same country as freaking Alabama, like... Seattle and Alabama, Seattle, Florida, um, Washington State has nothing in common with a lot of other states compared to the amount they have in common with British Columbia. So in a way, examining what's going on up in Vancouver, Canada in relation to sports uh, might say a, a bit about where I live. I mean, probably the closest thing to a sports riot in Seattle was... a. Uh, 2014 when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. But I don't even know if anyone really qualifies that as a riot because, sure, there were tons of people in the streets. Um, It was very crowded. Uh, There were even small little fires and stuff. People were climbing on stuff. And there were riot police. But I I don't think it really... There were no cars tipped, no cars on on fire, no buildings on fire, nothing like that. So it is a little different, but, you know, Seattle doesn't have much of a history of sports riots. And I think a lot of that's probably just because, like, the Sonics aren't here anymore. Um, The Seahawks, people like them when they're good and then kind of don't care when they're bad. The Mariners are probably uh, a less beloved team than the, than the Sonics are, and the, the Sonics haven't been here for like over a decade. So I, there's just not really a team for Seattleites to riot for most of the time, I guess. But, you know, what does it say about Vancouver that they consistently riot when they lose? Maybe it says they lose a lot. Maybe it says there's something about the Pacific Northwest psyche where, you know, we write when we lose, not when we win. I really do not know, but I do think that says a lot about society. Society.
And for um, my closing segment, I, I, I have another thing that I think says a lot about society. Society. Uh, the game World of Warcraft, The Burning Crusade. You are not prepared. So if you're, listen, I know you, some people might hear World of Warcraft completely tune it out, but I promise just, I'm not going to get in-depth into the game, so just listen. Um, because I think you might learn something about this. The Burning Crusade was the second expansion for World of Warcraft. It came out in 2007. What Blizzard, the publishers of World of Warcraft, has been doing is, I think a couple years ago now, they released Classic WoW. WoW in its original state, available available to play for the first time since 2004. They have just released The Burning Crusade, for the playable for the first time since 2007. And I have been playing it. And having played it back in the day, and having played it now, there is a noticeable change in the way people play that reflects on society. Now, for one, the game has been out for a long time, so naturally people are more intimate with the game, even though you could only really play it on private servers um, in the past. And so, naturally, as people get better at something, they get faster, they start developing internal systems uh, of efficiency and stuff like that. Um, and people are obsessed with really maximizing their stats, min-maxing. If you're not familiar with games, that's what they call it. Minimizing the mo- least beneficial stats, maximizing the most beneficial. And let me tell you how people played it back in the day. You know, they'd probably quest, they'd be out doing little quests. Maybe they'd pair up with someone. Then they'd be like, you know, we should do a dungeon. Let's find a few more people, go do a dungeon. They might do the dungeon, die a few times, but get through it in 45 minutes to an hour. And then they'd be like, wow, I played that for a few hours. That was fun. Let's group another time and log off. The way people play now is they preform groups for the instances. The, the dungeons, I should say. They uh, just run them like crazy, over and over. It's the most efficient way. Just run these dungeons over and over. If you cause them to die more than once or twice, you might get booted. If you do poor damage, if you're not doing enough damage, you might get booted. Now, you know, what I believe this says about society... Society... ...is... The capitalist impulse to increase efficiency for there always to be more, 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 constant growth, constant growth, that manifests itself inside the way people play games. And it's not like they're thinking, oh, I'm enacting the capitalist ideology of more, more, more. It's more that our technology and the way we use technology... Uh, complements that way of thinking. We we make computers and new technology function to maximize efficiency. The way capitalism measures efficiency is basically more, 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 more per hour, just more, more, more. But of course, uh, that might be true in a game, and I think that's a way to get people um, kind of in, indoctrinated into a capitalist ideology, because in a game, that's very intuitive. I want more faster. This is a game where you win when the numbers go up. So I want the numbers to go up faster than other people. I want my stats to improve faster more efficiently but the problem is this is rooted in a capitalist idea that you know is always trying to milk value from everything they can and the problem is uh, you know to really round out my point 
capitalism actually is terribly inefficient. It is efficient in one way, accumulating more capital. Why is it efficient at that? Because that's what the incentive, that's what the system incentivizes. If you're part of the capitalist class, your sole incentive is to make more money. Why do I say that? Because to become more firmly entrenched in the class, you need more capital. The more capital you have, the more safe you are. And the more uh, concretely cemented into the capitalist class you become. You know, if you own a boat dealership in, in Timbuktu, Iowa, you have some capital, right? But you're like a local uh, petty bourgeois. That capital could go poof if there's a recession. You're not comfortably in the capitalist class. You're kind of clinging to your capitalist status. But how do you retain your status as a capitalist? Get more capital. And so that is the one thing, the one thing capitalism is efficient at. Getting more capital. The problem is, it's pretty inefficient in other ways because of that. We could easily come up with a much more efficient system of housing people, for example. This whole landlord, rent, lease, contract crap, that is totally inefficient. To, okay, think about this. If a government's, one of their main duties is to, you know, protected citizens, provide basics, reinvest their tax dollars into things that are beneficial to you. And now consider, I live in the United States, the richest country in the world. You would think if the government exists to provide needs that they would have a little more to say about housing. But what does the federal government, local government, what does the U.S. say about housing? Well, you know, maybe we'll make a, a few little tiny, almost unlivable housing units and uh, we could put the poorest of the poor in there and, you know, we'll call those the projects, which don't even really exist anymore. Um, you know, we might do housing vouchers for super poor moms or very specific stuff like that, right? But if you live in the richest country and ostensibly the governments of countries provide needs, then our government would never let our rental system work through Craigslist and Zillow and all that. Think about it. It's one of the biggest industries in the country, necessarily. Housing is a huge deal. Our whole economy crashed because of the housing market. And the way you find a home is you go on janky-ass websites um, f where you find a landlord's phone number and try to harass them and hope you're the first one to harass them. And they, they don't make it easy either. You know, some of them are really, uh, you know, they don't work with you well. They're uncooperative. So, I mean, all of that is to say, to tie it back into what I was originally talking about, World of Warcraft. When people play World of Warcraft and they try to maximize their stats, that is a very capitalistic um, gesture. It's, it's because it's rooted in our ideology, which is extremely rooted in capitalist accumulation. That makes sense for a gain. And strangely, it makes more sense for a game than real life, even though the system was designed for real life. And I guess maybe that all goes to show that what we think of as games are really just a simulacra of reality 
where you know let's let's get rid of all the other stuff that gets in the way of of what what really matters the economic system a lot of games are like that what if it was capitalism but without all the other stuff that we normally ignore it's just laid bare capitalism more 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 and with that, I suppose it's a good time to wrap up this episode. Thank you for listening to The Society Show. You can follow The Society Show on Twitter at society underscore show. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Christian is cool. Is it spelled I-Z? You can leave a voicemail for the show if you'd like. I will play it on air. Call 971-238-4138. That's 971-238-4138. And you can write into the podcast if you want to email read on the show at societyshowpodcast at gmail.com. And if you missed any of that, be sure to check out the website societyshow.net. All of that information is up there. And with that, again, thank you for listening to the Society Show. College students, crummy students, great students, horrible students, dumb people, liberal people, conservative people. Everybody was doing the best they've ever done. PhDs from MIT, PhDs from crummy colleges. And shame on you, Peter, scaring the kids with your nuclear holocaust nonsense. <laughs> you said nuclear. It's nuclear, dummy. The S is silent. Oh, my God. It's all my mom's fault. Shut up. Shut up. Stop. Move forward. I get up in the morning and look at Joe and say, where the hell are we? That is nasty. As a man who looks like he bathes in Cheeto dust.